Now you'll remember we have insisted, or at least emphasized, by a topical survey of what we believe are some of the most important things uh, for your ministry. And the first of all is the character of your life. We have insisted that your church's greatest need, uh, second only to the clear preaching of the Word of God, is your consistent example of personal holiness. What you say and what you do must be the same thing, lest people be confused. And we've insisted at the very foundational level that the preacher certainly must be truly converted. He must be a totally committed disciple with an undivided heart. He must be growing in a deepening degree of practical and personal holiness. He must maintain a clear conscience before God and man. And he must be growing in a deepening, personal, expanding communion with the living God primarily cultivated in the place of secret prayer. And last of all, he must be a spiritual man whose life gives testimony uh, to the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in his character, in his speech, and as his ministry. So brethren, uh, while we're about to shift tonight by way of an introduction into what we consider the second most important thing in your life and ministry, please write these things upon your heart and take them to God in prayer and live on your knees and search your own heart in light of the clear teachings of the Word of God regarding the character and conduct of the preacher. That is your church's great need, your holy, consistent example. But you remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that simple, basic, foundational verse that we've been looking at, verse 16 of chapter 4, take and pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine, for in doing so, persevering in these things, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those that hear you. So we want to introduce tonight the, the subject of vital doctrine in the life of the church. It is absolutely essential that you be growing in an understanding of the truth of God, that you believe it savingly in your heart, that you can communicate it clearly in your life, that the people of God can understand and grow in the things of God. Now, because we have an evening class and we tend toward, as I often do as an older man, something akin to a semi-comatose state of slumber, I want to awaken us by giving you an exam. So I'd ask you to take out a pen and a piece of paper if you have it. And if you don't have it, write ask someone else for a pen and a piece of paper. I want you to write these words on this piece of paper. The first word is sanctification. Please write that down. The second word is effectual calling. 
effectual calling. The third word is adoption. Adoption. Uh, the fourth word is union with Christ. Uh, the fifth word is perseverance. Now, brother's writing here, so if you can't spell some of these words, he'll have it clearly for you. This, the next word is regeneration. Regeneration. And the next word is predestination. Predestination. And the next word is glorification. Glorification. And the next word is justification. And the next word is foreknowledge. And the next word is conversion. Conversion. And the last word is what we call in positional <coughs> sanctification. Positional sanctification. Here we've mentioned up here progressive sanctification. You remember we talked about that. Uh, was that this afternoon? And here we have positional sanctification. Now hear me carefully. These are all biblical words or biblical truths that you can find clearly communicated or expressed in the Word of God. Now here's your exam. I want you to take five minutes and I want you to put these words in their chronological, logical order according to the Word of God. And I'll give you a jump start by looking at the familiar passage in the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we have that wonderful verse that is a foundational assurance for the life of the Christian in the midst of all manner of difficulties. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know, that is, we have a solid persuasion wrought by the Spirit of God regarding the promises of God that God, God, it says, causes all things to work together for good. Now, notice he doesn't say all things are good. He says all things work together for good. God, in his strange and wonderful and mysterious sovereignty and providence, has permitted, appointed, or ordained the presence of evil and the activity of the devil in the unfolding of his eternal purposes to produce a greater glory. This is a great, great mystery, but God is overall, and he causes these things to work together for good. Now, it only works together for good to those who love God, that is, God has put his love for him in their heart, and they are, notice the description, called effectually according to his purpose. And then, of course, in verse 29 and 30, we have some expression of that purpose. Uh, what's the first point that he mentions in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew. So that may be the first one. So write that down, put another column there, and let's get these things in order. Look at the end of verse 30. What's the last word? Glorified. Glorified. That may be the last one. 
All right, now you're on your own. <laughs> we gave you the first one and the last one. I give you five minutes. Usually when I give this exam, I ask people to define the term and to find at least one verse that communicates that term. But tonight we're simply informally seeking to put this into practice. Hear me carefully. These are biblical terms, biblical truths that are the bedrock of the application of salvation to the life of the believer. And if there's anybody in the whole world that ought to be able to understand, believe, and clearly communicate these things to the people of God for their encouragement and comfort, it is you. No excuse to not understand over time, these truths. That's four and a half minutes now. Praise the Lord, this is not a qualification for entry into heaven. But if we get to heaven, this will be the reason we get there. The first one is obviously foreknowledge, according to Paul. And the last one is, uh, where is it? Glorification. Now listen carefully, some of these things happened in eternity past. Uh, some of these things will happen in eternity future. Some of these things happen in time, but they may be simultaneous. Some of these things happen in time and they are consequential or in sequence. You understand what we're saying? Now preachers should be able to think, should be able to examine the Word of God, should be able to understand over time these truths as to their definition, their biblical support, and their relationship one to another in the life of the believer. All right, here's how we're going to grade it. You got two choices. We can grade each one individually. It's pass or fail. If it's not perfect, you're out the door. <laughs> or you can choose a representative that you believe has the best opportunity to clearly order and arrange these truths. And he will represent you. And whatever grade he makes, we will stamp it on your record. Uh, what biblical truth is that? Imputation. Imputation by representation. Imputation by representation. Does anyone want to volunteer? You got five seconds, four, three, two, one. All right, no volunteers. <laughs> we simply wanted to set this before you to stimulate your thinking and to remind us how deep and expansive is the truth of the Word of God and how absolutely crucial it is. And without excuse, each one of us must be growing in a knowledge of biblical doctrine in order to feed the people of God. All right, so let's stop with that right now, and I trust you'll be able to continue to do that on your own in the future. But hear me, not an academic exercise. These are biblical realities that unfolded from eternity past and will end in eternity future. And all of the realities are wonderful salvation uh, were planned and purposed uh, according to God and unfold in our own life. 
And so these again, brethren, are wonderful biblical truths that I trust you will understand and grow more and more. So we want to talk about the importance of doctrine in the life of the preacher and thus in the life of the church. Now some people say doctrine is useless, doctrine is for the academic, doctrine is for the seminary, doctrine is of no use. We just need to love Jesus. We just need to love Jesus. And if we just love Jesus, that's all that will matter. Listen carefully. If that's all we were supposed to do, the Bible would have one page and it would have two words. Love Jesus. <laughs> but the Bible has a lot of pages and it has a lot of words. And these are words from the Bible. These are words that come from our Savior, from the throne of God, from all eternity past. And we are responsible to grow in Bible doctrine. Let me give you three reasons why doctrine is absolutely crucial. A brief introduction, it's very simple. Three reasons why doctrine is important. Now, when we say doctrine, we're talking about objective truth from the pages of the Word of God that represent and express spiritual realities objective truth from the Word of God that reflects and communicates spiritual realities. Why is it important? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 again. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we have looked at verse 16, but now we're talking about doctrine as it relates to the preacher. Notice verse 6. Notice verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Well, I don't have my glasses, so you may have to read it for me. Notice what it says. Paul is speaking to Timothy and pointing out, verse 6, these things to the brethren. That is, he has a ministry of communicating truth to the people of God. That is the responsibility of the pastor. That is the responsibility of the preacher. But notice what the rest of the verse says. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. We do not serve ourselves. We serve the Savior. We're not the lords or the masters of the church. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. But notice what it says, the servant himself, Paul tells Timothy, must be continually nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. What is Timothy saying here? There's a giving out of the word of God and there is then what? There is a taking in of the word of God. You got to feed yourself not on candy and cream puffs and the sweet little dainties now that are communicated primarily from Western Christi Christianity, but on the solid meat and potatoes of the good doctrine of the Word of God. Feeding yourself as you feed others. What you take in, you give out. If your soul is empty, your mouth will be hollow. If your belly is full of no truth, you'll have no strength to communicate it to others. You have the responsibility. So for the preacher's own personal spiritual life, he must be constantly feeding his own soul. <clears throat> you understand what we're saying? He can't be lazy. He got to live in this book 
and he's got to feed his own soul. Second reason why doctrine is absolutely important, it's for the edification and upbuilding of the church. This is very simple. Write this verse down, very familiar, Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians and chapter 4. Christ has ascended on high. He has given gifts to men. Notice chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, chapter 4, verse 11, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And what do these gifted men do? It says, verse 12, they equip the saints. And what do the saints do? They do the work of the ministry. And what is the result of that? It's the building up of the body of Christ. Now, hear me carefully. When the New Testament talks about ministry, it talks about it in several ways. It talks about men that are called to the ministry. Our brother quoted the verse this morning, his favorite verse, Acts 20. Not that I count my life on any account as dear to myself, but that I might finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace of God. There is a call to a specific ministry whereby God calls a man, gifts a man, and qualifies a man to exercise a public ministry, either as a gospel-preaching evangelist and church planter, or as a teacher and a pastor in the context of the church. And there is a general sense of ministry that is applicable to all the people of God, that they have received gifts as well, some public gifts, some private gifts, some speaking gifts, some serving gifts. All of the gifts are important. Peter says, as each one of us has received a special gift of God, let him use it and exercise it in the strength that God supplies. Everyone in here, including you dear sisters, have a gift given by God that is to edify the people of God. So there's a specific call to ministry for some, and there's the general ministry of all the people of God. And the result is, verse 13, to the attaining the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to a measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, verse 14, notice what it says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by every uh, every, every wave and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the craftiness and deceit. All kind of teachers in the world. And if the church is not growing in right doctrine, they'll not have discernment. For example, man comes into your church, has a conference, and he says that unless you're baptized, you cannot be saved. People say amen. <laughs> the next week, another preacher comes in and says, you're not saved by baptism. You're saved by God's grace through faith alone. Everyone says amen. <laughs> the next week, another preacher comes in and says, unless you speak in tongues, you cannot be saved. Everybody says hallelujah. <laughs> the next week, another preacher says, comes in and says, not everyone will speak in tongues. Amen. <laughs> next week, another preacher comes in and says, man chooses God. Everyone says, glory to God. Actually, they should be saying glory to man. 
And then the next week, someone comes in, no, and says, God chooses man. Everyone says, Amen. Tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, lacking discernment and understanding to be able to recognize the truth. And if the people under your care to whom you are preaching are not growing into a mature man, the knowledge of the Son of God, and they're not able to recognize true and false doctrine, it is their responsibility and it is your responsibility. We've got preachers all over the world now that barely understand and could not in any way articulate from the Word of God these basic truths. And so it is essential for the upbuilding and edification of the church that we be able to communicate to the people of God Amen. biblical doctrine. Like I said, not candy and sweets, but the meat and potatoes of the Word of God. George Whitfield, a great evangelist in England in the 1700s, said this, let a man go to the grammar school of repentance and faith before he graduates to the university of predestination and election. Hear me carefully. There are things that are basic. And Paul said, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, said, let us, let us, let us, let us, Hebrews chapter 6, let us look at it and see what it says. <laughs> Hear me carefully, young men. There's going to come a day when you're not going to remember things either. <laughs> so when your mind is soft and pliable and teachable, you better fill it with the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 6. Is it Hebrews chapter 6? <coughs> let us... Let us what? Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying a foundation again of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That is the essential of true conversion, repentance from dead works, from self-righteousness, from our own obedience and our own good deeds, turning from these things as any hope of salvation and turning to the living God by faith in Jesus Christ. No one is to stay in the first grade. If you've got a child and you go to the first grade and the teacher says after a year, he's not progressing. He needs to go first grade again. Another year later, the teacher says he's still not learning. He's got to stay in the first grade. Another year it happens, and you begin to understand that there may be something wrong with the mental faculties of that child, and therefore you have to deal with them in a sensitive and a special way. It's a great challenge, a gift from God, and a wonderful responsibility to care for a special needs child. If you have one, may God give you the grace to carry it through to the end. But hear me carefully. We're not to stay in the first grade. I've seen men that are old and gray hairs, and they don't know up from down, theologically and biblically, and they've been sitting in a church for 50 years. That should not be the case in our churches, the people to whom we minister, because we are serving up the truth of God. You go to a good restaurant in the East, 
They lay out a round table. They have the meat here. They have the rice here. They have the vegetables here. They have the fruit here. It's all arranged and it's orderly and it's nutritious. When we preach the Word of God, there ought to be order. There ought to be progression. There ought to be clarity. There ought to be quality of what we produce. You go to some preacher's church and they stand up and preach. It's like a hot pot. You know a hot pot? They just throw everything in there. And the people pick around in it. And they can't find anything good to eat. You can't preach like that. Clarity, order, simplicity, accuracy, directness, and application, and explanation so that the people of God can grow. You give them the milk of the word, but then a child begins to be able to take soft food. You go to some primitive countries, what does the mother do? How does she teach her child to eat meat? She takes it, she chews it, puts it in her mouth, chews it till it's malleable and soft, and gives it to the baby. That's your responsibility. You better chew on it, you better digest it, you better taste it, you better know it, you better believe it, and you better love it. And then you give it to the people in a manner in which they can understand. As someone said, you put the cookies where? On the lower shelf. So the little kids can reach it. So hear me carefully. That's why doctrine is absolutely and crucial for your own spiritual life and growth. Can we chew the meat of the Word of God, digest it, be nurtured by it, and be able to clearly communicate it to the people. Listen carefully, a good preacher and teacher, he can take high truth and, and communicate it in a manner that people can understand without sacrificing its depth. And that is a gift. He takes high truth and he brings it down where people can understand, but he hasn't sacrificed or compromised the depth of that teaching. That's a gift from God. And if you're called to preach, you're supposed to have that gift, able to teach. For your own personal growth and for the well-being, profit, and maturity of the church. And number three, of course, we've already heard it from our brother yesterday morning to protect the church from error, to protect the church from false teaching. Jesus said they're going to be false prophets and false teachers. They're not going to come with a big neon sign that says, I'm a false prophet, I'm a false teacher. He says they're going to be dressed in sheep's clothing, either deceitfully or sincerely. They may not understand the truth, and they've been improperly instructed, and yet they are very sincere. They may even be gifted. They may even be holy men. But as we've said, a good life without an understanding of right doctrine will not profit the people of God. Paul put it this way quickly, Acts chapter 20. Again, one of those important chapters that we mentioned that all preachers ought to be able to almost memorize you heard our brother this morning quoting from memory some important, wonderful psalms. 
I encourage you to be given over to meditation and memorization if necessary on your knees of such crucial uh, passages such as Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul describes his ministry. And then having done that, verses 17 to 27, there's Paul describing his ministry and it's a pattern, it's a pattern for all of us. But then notice verse 28. Remember, verse 28 down to verse 35, he exhorts them as to what their ministry is supposed to be. Verse 28, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock of God, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, bishops, or pastors. That words are synonymous, uh, denoting one office to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Brethren, there is a serious verse for each one of us. Be on guard for yourselves and for your flock. Guard your heart, guard your doctrine, guard your soul, guard your life, and guard the church of God because the Spirit of God has placed you in a position as an under-shepherd in the life of the church of God, and your responsibility is to shepherd, to feed, to protect, to nurture, to care for, to know the sheep. The shepherd doesn't just sit every day up on the mountain and holler at them from a mountaintop. He's down among them. He's examining them. He's interacting with them. Know well the condition of your flock, it says somewhere. Proverbs? That's your responsibility. Why? Verse 29, because I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, the devil has twisted the Word of God. And down through the centuries, one of his greatest strategies is to bring false teachers into or around the church and they twist the Word of God. And it sounds true. It's got biblical words. It's a half-truth, but there's something wrong with it. And they twist it, as Peter said, uh, concerning the Scriptures, to their own and to other people's destruction. And your responsibility as a shepherd is to be able to recognize the difference between a true sheep and a wolf that's coming with sheepskin over him. Because he says, from among you, savage wolves will arise. And notice what he says. Be on the alert, verse 31. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you. Now notice verse 29, they will come in from the outside. And verse 30, they will rise up from the inside. And your responsibility is not to be lazy, not to go to sleep, but to be constantly vigilant and watching in regards to the people under your care or the people to whom you minister, whether you're an evangelist, a Bible teacher, or a pastor, or a church planter. The devil wants in the very beginning to come in the context of a new church plant and scatter a little 
poison, uh, just barely discernible to the ignorant and the immature, but your responsibility is to be able to distinguish between the things that differ, Paul said in the book of Philippians. Very quickly then, one last verse. Why is doctrine important? Titus chapter 1. Another passage that you ought to be committing to serious meditation and reflection. He's talking about the qualifications and responsibilities of elders in the church. Now, you may not be an elder. You may be a teacher. You may be a church planter. Uh, you may be an evangelist that's going out scattering the seed. I don't know your particular situation. I don't know the condition of your ministry. I don't know the burdens of your heart. I don't know the nature of your gift. I don't know, I've never heard you preach, but I do know this. You're going to serve God. Your life and your doctrine must be biblical. And so he says, verse 5, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things that remain and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And again, this passage is similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You remember the emphases, 14 or 15 characteristics or qualifications. And what's the emphasis? Four things, life, family, doctrine, and gift. Life, family, doctrine, and gift. Every one of these 14 or 15 things will fall under one of those heads. Life, family, doctrine, and gift. He must have a holy life. He must be blameless. He must be above reproach. He's not perfect. But when people look at him, he has credibility. They say, that man is sincere. I know he has clay feet. My wife knows I have clay feet. My children know I have clay feet. They live with me day in and day out. But by the grace of God, before the law of God, I'm seeking sincerely, striving to keep a good conscience toward God and men and to be the man that God calls me to be. That's blameless. That is no one from the outside or even his wife from the inside. Now, your wife sees you wandering around your house in your underwear. She doesn't. Mine does. And she knows me. And for 20 years, I pastored a church. And my wife and my three kids, sitting not on the front row, that was empty, but on the second row. And they heard me speak. And I showered them with my spit <laughs> for 20 years. And if I was a hypocrite, they would know it. If I was a hypocrite, they would know it. Now, you invite my wife in here, my kids in here, and they'll tell you this. My husband or our father wasn't a perfect man. But I'll tell you this. He believed what he preached, and he sought to live it by the grace of God. You've got to be able to have that testimony, blamelessness, by the grace of God. But again, notice life, family, well-ordered family, doctrine, and gift. Verse 9. The responsibility of church leaders. 
holding fast the faithful word that is according to the teaching or doctrine. That is, he must hold it in intellectual understanding, emotional, heartfelt conviction, living obedience to its truth, and protect it and clearly preach it to others. Hold fast the faithful word. Notice what he says, that it is according to the teaching of the doctrine, so that he may be able to do what? Two things. What are those two things? Look at the verse. That he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine, and number two, to refute those who contradict. That is his responsibility. And if you don't know sound doctrine, you can't exhort in sound doctrine. And if you don't know sound doctrine, you cannot recognize false teaching. So as I asked you the other day, I gave you another test. Foreknowledge and predestination. What is their relationship? What is their definition? Can you explain that from the Word of God? Total depravity, moral inability, human responsibility. Do you understand the difference? And can you explain that to the people of God that they understand their previous condition and their present ability and what is their peculiar responsibility in our preaching? How about uh, regeneration and conversion? Can you define it from the Word of God? Can you explain its relationship one to another so that people understand that salvation is from God? Now listen carefully. And I teach on life. You a lot of examples, a lot of illustrations, and a lot of personal exhortations. Everybody is awake and alert. But when we begin to teach on doctrine, it has a subtle influence in its ability to put people to sleep. But hear me carefully. You need to listen because eternity hangs in the balance. We're talking about heaven and hell. And we're talking about guiding people safely to heaven. And your responsibility is to be able to tell them the distinctions and differences between these things and listen carefully. Every generation, my brother and I talk about this a lot, must reestablish an understanding of the relationship of justification and sanctification. Do you understand those terms? And can you explain to the people so that they avoid the extreme of legalism on one side and antinomian loose living on the other side. Brethren, hear me, these are things you cannot toy with. These are things that you cannot just say the words. You must explain the meaning from the Word of God so that people can look at the Bible and see it for themselves. And a good teacher says, look at the Bible, look at the Bible, and people can see what you're saying because you are pointing it out directly in the Bible. If you're saying something from a verse that even the best people in your church look at it and say, where is it? I don't see it in there then you're not properly and accurately handling the Word of God. 
our responsibility is not to be sophisticated, not to be impressive, not to show people our education, or not to use big words or long sentences. Our responsibility is to plainly, clearly teach the Word, especially to uninstructed, uneducated people that have not had the advantage that others have. That's what this brother's talking about in, in uh, Papua New Guinea, is it not? In regards to the people's ignorance, because the pastors themselves may not even be converted, much less clear in their understanding of the truth of God. And so there's no way they can exhort in sound doctrine, much less refute those that contradict. That's why doctrine is important for your own spiritual life and for the life and edification of the church and to protect and to preserve the church from false teaching. Any questions on what we said about this very simple, basic introduction as to why doctrine is important. You understand what we're saying. Listen carefully. These words are in the Bible. Or these truths are in the Bible. Now, this is how it's translated in English. And these words are good English translations of Greek terms. I don't know how it translates in your native language. But most of you, all of you, can read English to some degree, and these are biblical terms, and you can have a confidence that these terms are accurately communicating what the original authors wrote in the original language. And your responsibility is to be able to distinguish the things that differ. What is the relationship between foreknowledge and predestination? What is the relationship between justification and sanctification? What is the relationship of effectual calling and regeneration? Is it here somewhere? Regeneration and union with Christ. Listen, it's a big book. A lot of words. A lot of truth. Time is short. I've been looking at it for 50 years, and I feel like I'm in the first grade. Where are you? <laughs> well, as a newborn babe, long for the pure milk of the word, that you may what? Grow in respect to salvation. Any questions or comments? Some of us are fading. And so we'll stop right there because God knows our weakness. He's mindful that we're but flesh. Hear me carefully. You know the problem with a lot of preachers? They talk too long. Spurgeon said, if you can't say something useful in 45 minutes, sit down. A good preacher clearly explains what he's going to talk about. He tells them where we're going. Then he tells them how we're going to address it. And then he explains his main idea with these subpoints, and he opens it up like a man peels an orange and takes one section out, gives it to the people. And they chew on it and think about it. 
And then either at the instruction and explanation, he can add some application, or at the end, he can bring it all and tie it all together. Listen carefully. A good message. And this is not a class in homiletics. But I've listened to a lot of sermons. Don't bore people with the Word of God. Don't bore people with the Word of God. Open it up. Tell them what you want to say. Explain how you're going to say it. And then interpret it and apply it to the heart. Inform the mind. But a good preacher is interested in speaking to the heart and the life and the conscience. We're after men's conscience, whether they're lost or whether they're saved. The preacher has an ally. He has a friend in the hearts of people, and it is their conscience. And your responsibility is to go for the conscience, either by way of encouragement or exhortation or admonition and correction. Rebuke, reprove, exhort, teach, and instruct. What's the first use of Scripture? Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And interestingly, in historical context, he's talking about the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament hadn't been given yet in its fullness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, number one, for what? Doctrine, Doctrine teaching, so that who? The man of God would be thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. Brethren, live in the book. Open it up and explain it to people simply and plainly and be willing to take them from the milk to the meat in a way that they can understand. Any questions? Yeah. Brother Andy, I'm sure you've encountered your fair share of false teachers hmm. during your lifetime. Can you kind of flesh out how you confronted them or what, what did that look like? It depends on the context and the peculiar person and their disposition and attitude. If they had a teachable spirit, were sincere, but were not properly handling the Word of God, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And if you will open up the Word of God and explain to them, brother, that's, that's not exactly what the Word of God says here. You need to understand that your obedience and your good works do not add to your salvation. Let's understand the difference between justification and sanctification. Others you cannot correct. They are stubborn and hard-headed. They have their mind of their own. They are under the control at times of the devil who promotes doctrines of demons. And so, yes, if he's humble and teachable and he trembles at the Word of God, then it's possible that he can be slowly corrected. The servant of the Lord, 2 Timothy 2, 24, must not be quarrelsome, but be gentle, patient when wronged, correcting those with gentleness, if perchance God may grant them repentance 
leading to the knowledge of the truth. There's only so much you can do. So pray, assess their disposition as to whether they have a teachable, humble heart. Uh, I've run into a lot of people like that. I spent many, many years on the backside of China. And those dear people are so sincere. Many of them have suffered greatly for the kingdom of God, but they're woefully uninstructed. I'd have a meeting like this with uh, 75 people, and in the back there would be 30 dear Christian sisters that loved the Lord. Some of them been in prison. They were all pastors. And so we would talk about church leadership the qualifications of church leadership. And we would point to the scriptures in 1 Timothy 2 and other passages, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority in a man. That verse properly interpreted in its context primarily speaks about women, formal elders in the context of a church. That's the first application. And these dear women when I'd explain these things with as much sensitivity as I could, they'd begin to weep. They just weep. They said, we don't have any men in our village. What do we do? And when they asked me that question, I'm a long way from any straight-laced Reformed Baptist pastors. And I say, sister, you keep preaching, you pray, that God would raise up men and you appeal to other churches that have a man as a leader to come in here and to begin to guide you and to direct you and teach you. I don't care if he has to come from all the way across the country. They had a humble, teachable heart. Now, I ran into a few men that were living ungodly lives and they could not be corrected because they were enslaved to their sin. They held to that pulpit like it was a throne. This is my church, this is my kingdom, these are my people, and you get out of here. And they would not stand to hear from any young men that understood the truth while they were like an old water buffalo that had spent 50 years walking the same path out to the pasture and back again, and you couldn't get them out of that path. I've met a lot of men like that. And I've told the young men, look, you pray, you be a good example. You let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example, and then you wait on God. That's a big word in the Bible, wait. Especially for young men. Yes, brother. I'm from Bangladesh. That's a big problem in many churches in Africa, Asia, and sadly more and more in America. You got false shepherds, false teachers that are leading people astray. And we desperately need to pray that God would clean out the pulpits. And the only way I know that's going to happen is by prayer and by preaching and teaching the truth and by waiting on God and living a consistent holy life. That brings up another question from my brother here and Papua New Guinea that ask relative to the qualifications and character of pastors, uh, if a pastor in a church, a formal pastor, falls into sin, commits adultery, 
steals money or has a gross abuse of his domestic responsibilities over a long period of time and he's no longer qualified whatsoever uh, should he be dismissed and if he is dismissed can he ever be restored to the same position of a pastor in the church again now that's a big big question first question. I'm giving you my I trust sanctified opinion. Dr. Burns can kick in here and say what he wants to say. Yes, he can be restored to fellowship with Christ, uh, to the context of the church, and to his relationship with the Lord if there is genuine repentance and the fruit of repentance has been evident over extended period of time. But my personal conviction, if you combine Proverbs chapter 6, a man that goes into his neighbor's wife, his reproach will never be wiped away. And one of the qualifications of a pastor is he must be what? Above reproach. He has lost the privilege of standing in this place. And God forbid that that happened to me at this point in my life and that happened to any one of us here. My personal conviction is that if a man falls into gross public sin and even if he repents, he is no longer qualified for the rest of his life to occupy a formal position as a pastor in an established church. Brother, would you generally agree with that? You understand what we're saying and not he can be restored to fellowship with Christ, to fellowship in the church. He can come to the Lord's table again. But I want to tell you, this pulpit does strange things to ungodly men. It's like they get into the temple in the Old Testament and they held to the horns of the altar and you couldn't pull them off of it. You can't pull off an ungodly, traditional, unconverted preacher from the pulpit with a load of horses. Hear me carefully. Now, when I say that, it makes me want to go home and hide under my bed and beg for mercy. God forbid. God forbid that this happened to us. And that's why I said again, men, anybody in this room toying with secret sin, a little sin leads to a great transgression. And I've seen that in my own life. David got lazy, sloppy, didn't fulfill his responsibility. As we said, he didn't go out to the Lord's battles. One look. One look, murder, adultery, a divided home, and the tearing down of the kingdom. One look. And my friend, you don't have to go far out this door. There's nothing but skin everywhere you look all over the world. Men, let's guard our eyes. Let's guard our eyes. Let's don't let that phone, reach out that serpent snake and grab us by the throat. If anybody's in here toying, tempted, or addicted to pornography, 
Repent. Repent. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, as a man grows older, he may find the temptations of his youth coming back and biting him in the butt. So we got to watch all the way to the end. That's my personal conviction. According to the word of God, uh, his reproach will never be wiped away. That doesn't mean his fellowship with God cannot be restored. Men, listen carefully. If that ever happens to me, you pray God would kill me. My prayer every day, keep me or kill me. That's how serious sin is. Keep me or kill me. Now, if you hear I'm dead tomorrow, that doesn't mean I was involved in any sin. That <laughs> does mean my time is over. Hear me carefully. Moses said something about three score and 10. I believe that's 70 years, or if by reason of strength, 80 years. Well, I've had my 70 years and I've got a little extra on the side here. And I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. As I've told some of you before, my father died when he was 64 uh, because he had problems in his head. And I've got that same problem. And I played professional American football for a long time and I had a whole bunch of concussions. And it's affected my thinking, as you can see here, by my inability to quote exactly where the verse is. So my brain is fading fast. And I could be dead tomorrow. And we need to live every day on the edge of eternity. We need to live every day on the edge of eternity and buy up the time because the days are evil. So brother, that's my, that's my, that's my answer uh, to that question. Uh, another, another question. Well, by God's grace, we'll survey some of these things tomorrow and uh, we'll probably tag team on some of this. Our brother can come in and, uh, and uh, kick in his understanding because his burden for many years has been similar to mine. That is an understanding every generation, brethren, has got to understand the definition of justification and sanctification and their relationship to one another. If you mix them together, you've got legalism. If you separate them and insist they don't go together, you've got antinomianism. And your responsibility is to be able to clearly explain that to the people of God. What is the difference between these two words, imputation and impartation? You've got to be able to understand that and explain it. So by God's grace, to some degree, perhaps we can look at that tomorrow, though we'll be surveying some of this. Uh, uh, we don't have time to look at it in detail. Any other questions? Now, let me give you my own opinion that I believe based upon my present understanding of the Word of God. Listen carefully. The Spirit, I believe, is indiscriminate in its distribution of gifts. What does that mean? That every gift available to a man could be had and given to a woman. Now, none of you may agree with that. It's a matter of where and how she uses that gift. Mm -hmm. 
I believe a woman can be an evangelist and go out to preach to a mixed group of men and women. I believe a woman can teach a sit-down Bible study to uneducated and uninstructed and unevangelized people, men and women. I believe that, but listen carefully. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not allow a woman to teach and exercise authority over a man has got to be interpreted by the three basic rules of hermeneutics. And what are they? Context. 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 And what's the context? <laughs> First Timothy chapter 3. In case I am delayed, I'm writing to you and instructing you as to how you might conduct yourself in the church of God, which is the house of God, the church of the living God. He's talking about ministry in the context of the church. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, immediately following that exhortation that women cannot teach and exercise authority over a man, he talks about the qualifications for pastors and an elders in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5 tells us, listen carefully, let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those that preach and teach. Paul says the responsibility of elders is twofold. What are they? Rule in the church and teach in the church. He says in chapter 2, there's two things a woman cannot do. What are they? rule in the church and teach in the church. Therefore, what? A woman cannot be an elder. You understand what we're saying? Let's let Paul interpret himself. Now, there may not be anybody in the room that agrees with that. So, if they don't like it back at the office, you can cut that part out, brother. <laughs> Context. Context. Uh, I believe a woman can be an evangelist. Uh, you may not believe that. I can tell by the look on your face, brother. I agree with you. Generally. But listen carefully. I I believe this, that uh, the gift of preaching and teaching and the gift of leadership are not the same. Uh, in a church, if you've got a plurality of elders, you may have those that have an ability to preach and teach, those that have a peculiar burden to shepherd and to counsel, and those that have a peculiar burden to lead and administrate. Now, yes, one man can have all of those gifts. What is the gift of leadership? It's a gift. It's a gift. Not just a position, it's a gift. And the gift of leadership basically is this. A man can assess the situation and discern what the condition of the thing is. He can look at the Word of God and see what the Word of God says. And he has the ability by the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the gift of God to move people. To move people. 
not by the force of his personality or by hitting them over the head with the Bible, but by his example, by his gift, and by his teaching to move people. A leader is someone that can move people. They have a gift and people recognize it and are willing to follow. Think of David's mighty men. You remember David's mighty men. Now that was a real bad bunch of dudes, as we say in America. But they followed David the shepherd boy. Now he was a warrior, but he had the gift and they recognized it. So leadership is a gift. A preacher, a pastor may not have that gift. He may have the gift of shepherding. He may have the gift of teaching. He may have the gift of leadership. Is there a general amen on some of this, brother? <laughs> okay, general. That word general brings a lot of qualification. <laughs> uh, listen carefully. I believe a woman, now hear me carefully, can have the gift of pastoring. But she never becomes a pastor in a formal church. She has the ability to shepherd and to care for people, other women. Now, you may not agree with that, that's fine. Don't go out of here and say, Brother Andy said women ought to be pastors. <laughs> I believe she can have a gift to shepherd other women and to teach them and to care for them. You say, well, if she's already got a male pastor, why does the church need a female pastor? Hear me carefully. If you haven't looked around lately, about two-thirds of the world is women and children. Can a woman, a woman be called to be a missionary? You need to answer that question. Because, listen carefully, the most abused, misused, and mistreated group of people in the history of the world are women. Every generation, every culture, every country, every religion. Women are the most abused, mistreated group of people in the history of the world. Now, you know, there are three great distinctions in humanity. And I'm looking at it right here. What are they? What's the most basic distinction? Male and female. Number two, race or ethnicity, Jew and Gentile. And number three, class, high and low, rich and poor, educated, uneducated. Listen carefully. The most abused group of people in the history of the world are poor minority females. You hear that? Paul said in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free. The ground is level at the cross in regards to justification, adoption, sanctification, and our acceptance before God. There are distinctions relative to function and role in life, ministry, and the church. But hear me carefully. I've been a lot of places in the world, and that's why we as men, God help us as men. I told you yesterday, your wife's not your concubine. Your wife's not your nanny. 
your wife's not your, 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 your cook. Your wife's not, uh, she's not any of those things. She's your wife. And if there's one thing this part of the world desperately needs to see, second only to a holy life, is a godly marriage. My Bible says, love her as Christ loved the church, give yourself to her, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Men, I can tell you after being married 52 years, that is a tall, tall order. And if you can do that, God will bless you. So yes, I believe we need women to reach women. Men can reach women. And I believe women can preach indiscriminately, share, communicate the gospel, give their testimony in informal situations to a mixed group of people. And I don't believe that's violating 1 Timothy 2. Now, you may not agree with that, but that's my present conviction. You understand what we're saying? Now, you mark it down. Women are the most abused group of people in the history of the world. Let it not be so among us. Any other questions? Probably at times in certain contexts, one of the most lonely, challenging positions in the church is the pastor's wife or the teacher's wife or the leader's wife. But other women in the church have the responsibility to befriend her, to love her, to draw her into their fellowship and to interact with her and to pray for her and listen carefully, the man as a pastor has a responsibility to ensure that his wife is growing spiritually. She's not just a nanny to your children. She's not just a teacher at home to your children. She's a child of God. And your responsibility is to make sure your wife is growing as a Christian appropriate to her personality, her education, and her abilities. I can tell you one thing. I've talked to a lot of preachers, and I've met with them and their wife. And you can tell a lot about a man by trying to interact with his wife. You can tell a lot about a man by trying to interact with his wife. Your wife is like a, like, a, like a flower. And your responsibility is to shower her with love and grace and leadership and tenderness so that she blossoms. And the sweet fragrance of the full orb of sanctified femininity is evident in and through her life. Now some women are sweet, simple women and they're not going to be Bible teachers. And their responsibility and burden is only to support their husband and to love their children, to be kind, to be workers at home so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. But some women are not like that. Some women are just, I married one of them. <laughs> All I can say is like being married to a tornado. <laughs> I've been caught up in that thing for 52 years. So everyone is different. Your wife's not going to be like another woman. You live with your wife, Peter said, in an understanding way. That is, you understand who she is. 
that she is a weaker vessel. That doesn't mean she's more stupid than you are. That means that she has a sensitivity. I often compare a wife to a butterfly. You seen a butterfly? Very sensitive, very tender, very fragile. And I compare men to a water buffalo. <laughs> or one of those big drums that's made out of hard wood on the outside, thick skin on the top, and empty in the middle. <laughs> and you can beat on it all day. And it doesn't even notice it. But you blow on a butterfly. You understand your wife? That there's a full-time job. Well, that's what Peter says you're supposed to do. Well, we didn't mean to get off in this domestic stuff. <laughs> but answer your question, yes, men and women can have multiple gifts. It's a matter of what context in which they use them. And if you don't agree with that, that's fine. Father, we are thankful that our acceptance in your sight is not based upon our performance. It's based upon the performance of another. He took the test and he bore the shame and the penalty. And that righteousness he accomplished in his life and that penalty he paid in his death, you were pleased to impute, to legally transfer to our record and we stand complete in him. So we glory in our Redeemer. But we pray, Lord, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now that's not the only verse in the Bible. We have all these glorious truths that all eternity will not be sufficient to plumb the depths or sound the praises. And so we pray we would begin now. Deliver us from being lazy, irresponsible, haphazardly handling the Word of God, but to be clear, bold, plain, accurate, simple preachers that people might understand the truth and recognize error. We commit ourselves afresh to that end. Grant us rest tonight, and if you're pleased to preserve us through the night, may we awaken tomorrow with deep gratitude and a new determination to love and serve you with all of our heart or all of our life, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. For we ask it in the name of the one that did all of that for us, even our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.